0: The title of today's sermon is my dead-end job. Let me ask you something. How many of you, let's just be honest, students, it's for you too as a student. How many of you just like, I don't like what I do? Raise your hand high. (laughs) I don't know why I'm preaching this sermon series. It's like, everybody, how many of you love your job and love what you do? (laughs) Is this something about our church, you know? No, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, seriousness, today I'm going to be speaking about half the time to those of us that have, and I'm myself, hard time at various seasons of my life going, it's what I do matter, is is what I'm doing really significant, and the hardness of it. And then I'm also going to be speaking to us that are actually loving our jobs, love what we do, and the various implications for that as we follow Jesus. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to actually look at one verse in Ephesians 5, and then we're going to look at Ephesians 6, a handful of verses in 6. So in some ways, uh, my sermon today geared towards those of us that struggle, so if you're loving your job, love everything about it, you get up in the morning, you go, I can't wait to go to work, and somebody has to pry you away from your job at night, be sitting there going, thank you, Jesus, for what I get to do. And uh, next Sunday, uh, I'm going to end this sermon series talking about the critical importance of Sabbath and why we need to rest, which I know for a fact that almost none of us do well here. Um, That's how we'll end our sermon series. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we jump all the way down to chapter 6, verse 5, as Paul gives uh, a list of commands about what it means to submit to one another. Verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Let me stop here. Everybody look up here for a second. Because if you're paying attention this morning and you're kind of focused, we read that verse and all of a sudden there should be something inside of Ghost go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. How many of us have had conversations or have been involved in some sort of conversations where somebody, a non-Christian, will say something on the lines of, didn't Christianity endorse slavery? Doesn't the Bible say sort of slavery? And so therefore, something that endorsed something like that, I don't have anything to do with. And so therefore, I don't have anything to do with the Christians or Christian faith. Anybody? How many of you have actually heard that argument being laid out by a lot of people? It's very problematic in our culture today. And so here's what we need to do. What we need to do is, especially if you have these non-Christian friends that you're dialoguing with about the Christian faith, you need to sit there and go, what do I do about passages like this? And how do I, how do I, with conviction and with actually knowledge, be able to share with them, this is what the Bible meant, and if you really look at what the Bible meant, the institution of slavery should not be in existence in the, world, in, in the form that we know it from the very beginning. Because here's the thing that we need to know. What Paul is writing to is a Greco-Roman first century audience. And you got to understand the context of Greco-Roman first century audience and the institution of slavery. Here are three things about the institution of Greco-Roman slavery in the first century. Number one, slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. Slaves in first century Greco-Roman empire could be Asian, could be European, could be African, could be a number of people. And not only that, but in terms of language and clothing, you couldn't distinguish them. It's almost as if they blended into the rest of society. Second thing about Greek roman uh, slavery. slaves were often more educated than their owners and many times held very high managerial positions. Third thing about first century Greco-Roman slavery, and this is huge. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and so were not usually poor. Slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Some slaves owned other slaves, and very few were slaves for life. Usual term for someone who was, quote-unquote, a slave to a master was 10 to 15 years. And many of them, many of them, many of them, emphasis, many of them never stayed a slave for life. So people intentionally would sell themselves into slavery because they accrued a huge debt and they couldn't pay it off. And that was one of the best ways, effective ways, to pay off that. Now, this is Greco-Roman first century slavery in the context in which Paul is writing. But when you and I read the Bible, when we hear the word slavery, immediately we think of 16th to 19th century, what we call new world slavery. And that evil, unjust institution had three things. Number one, slavery in the new world, it was race-based, so all slaves were easily identifiable. Two, it was, its default mode was slavery for life. And here's the third most important thing you need to know from Scripture standpoint. The entire slave trade was begun and resourced through kidnapping. Two totally different institutions. Now, why is this important? It's important for this reason. When Christians are accused of endorsing slavery, you got to go, apparently they didn't read their Bibles. Because you know what the Bible had to say about kidnapping slaves and involving in slave trade. Here's two passages in the Bible that gets to this. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We know that the law is good for one if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the religious. So Paul's about to go, here are these types of people. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for Slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. You go, how did people that are actually reading the Bible involve themselves in what we now know as new world slavery? Here's one other passage in the Old Testament, okay? It's a little bit harder, a little bit harsher. Deuteronomy. If a man is caught kidnapping and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. You must purge all evil from among you. This notion that the Bible is somehow supportive of what we in our modern-day 2012 culture look at as endorsing slavery. Listen, you you know what historically happened? Number one, first of all, slaves and servants flooded into the church. Couldn't keep them out. Flooded into the church in the first century church because of what the Bible actually said about the issue of slavery and also masters. Okay, And we'll look at a passage in a moment. But also, we also know that the people that actually worked the hardest to abolish the institution of slavery in the New World were Christians, because they were Christians who actually read their Bibles and said, "How do we reconcile this thing, this evil, with what the Bible says?" And they led the charge. But in the first century church, in the institu- first century church, the institution of slavery in that context could only wither and die, because what Paul says and other New Testament writers said was stuff like this all the time. Listen to what he said: First Corinthians chapter. Verse 22. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freeman when he was called, uh, who was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. The attitude that Paul demanded of Christians and Christians demanded of the gospel is that they came around and said, the Bible says all men and women have dignity. All men and women are created in the image of God. All had equal footing in the sight of God. And the Bible said yes. Slaves and servants flooded into the church because of that. And the institution of slavery in the first century could only wear their knife. Now, this is important for you because on one hand, if you're sitting there going, if I ever talk to another non-Christian who goes, the institution, was... you can go, let me show you what the Bible says, let me show you what the context says and see why the Bible actually was an impetus for Christians leading the charge and abolishing this. Now, but you sitting there going, okay, how does first century... <laughs> First century commands that Paul gives to slaves and slave owners and masters have anything to do with me. I was like 2,000 years ago. This isn't so huge. Actually, when you think about and when you read what Paul really had to say, you realize how relevant it is for those of us today. Um, Studs Terkel was a guy who went around interviewing people about what they thought about their job and their work. Okay? And he collected all of these things okay, and wrote a book. The introduction to this book. He interviewed Americans. This is what he says in the introduction to this book. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches, about fistfights, about nervous breakdowns, as well as kicking the dog around. Next. It's above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. Working in oral history. Paul comes along and he says, in the first century, there are people who looked at their work and said, this is grinding drudgery. This is every day I have to get up and do this. This is humiliating. This is overwork and being underpaid. This is just tremendous pressure. Just a chance of people came in and listened to the gospel and what God had to say about work. And they were liberated. They were able to look at their work and say, This is something I can throw wholeheartedly myself into. This is something I can give all of myself to. This is something that I could do for the glory of God. And it changed people's attitudes. Listen, listen. Your work, tomorrow when you go, it'll be the same people. Your bosses will be the same. Your coworkers will be the same. Everything else will be the same. The primary thing that could change is what? The primary thing that can change is what? Is you and it's me. And what Paul says to us could be a revolutionary adjustment in terms of how we feel work. Particularly those of you that said they're going, really have to do this for a while. All right. So let's get what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Here's what Paul says. So obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ. This is important. Doing the will of God from your heart. Okay, Verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. The important verse there is verse 7. Where he says uh, in in the NIV, serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not men. But in actual, in literal it says, serve wholeheartedly, comma, it's actually the Lord you're serving, not men. Now I'll tell you why this is important. How many of you guys have questions about God's will for your life? (laughs) Okay. Finally something everybody connects to. Do you know what the Bible says over and over again? It is when you and I are obedient to and surrender to the revealed will of God, what God has already made clear, what God has already said, this is it, that we are able to better discern the personal will of God that we have. Does that make sense? Many of us are like, I want God's will for my marriage, my relationship, God's will for my future, God's will, all these things. And the Bible says over and over again, clearly, when you and I obey and surrender to what God has made clear, that is when God comes along and says, all the personal details of your life and what you want to know, I can reveal them, those things to you. Now, what we see in Paul in Romans, uh, if he, uh, Ephesians 6 is this. Here is a clearly revealed will of God. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to question. Here is a clearly revealed will of God. What is it, Paul? Work wholeheartedly. Because it's the Lord you're serving, not men. Work wholeheartedly. We'll talk about that in a bit. It's actually the Lord you're serving, not men. Paul was saying to those of us that are stuck in a situation about various things, but particularly we like, I don't know if I'm going to do this for a while. I don't know if I'm going to do this for forever. I don't know what my next steps are, so on and so forth. Paul says, the best thing that you can do, college student, what do I do when I graduate? What I? The best thing that you can do, those of you two, three years into work, you're going, this is not what I want to do ultimately. The best thing that you can do to find out what God will reveal to you personally about you is to, right now, serve wholeheartedly. Is actually the Lord you're serving, not men. Did you hear what I'm saying? So you know what, guys? Ask yourself the question. What's my attitude and approach as I think about this? Serve wholeheartedly. Students, serve wholeheartedly. Two, three years in the work, serve wholeheartedly. I'm kind of, serve wholeheartedly. The revealed will of God, serve wholeheartedly. Then the personal things, specific things, detailed things, God says, I know those too. I know those too, Okay? Hugely important. Now, a little bit of background work again, and, 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 and we're going to jump into uh, the, the primary sort of big principles about what Paul says here. But, but many Greeks and Romans writers wrote what was called household codes, okay? And you find these in Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Timothy. Household codes were, when you want to read the Bible, New Testament, and all of a sudden he goes into, so husbands and wives, and slaves and masters, and parents and children. These were household codes, a code of conduct that regulated how family or, 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 or dynamics worked in the house. Here's the thing, though. When pagan, writers, when pagan writers wrote household codes, they never addressed slaves. They always addressed masters. They never addressed slaves. Slaves weren't even counted in there. So it's like, I'm not even the slaves. Masters, teacher, what does Paul do? This is revolutionary. And if you're not a Christian here, by the way, this is Christianity. What does Paul do? He addresses who first? The slave first. He addresses the slave first. And he says to the slaves, this is what you ought to do. What is he saying to them? You have dignity. I treat you as responsible agents. You are equal, valuable in the sight of God. Hello. Huge. See, most of us just read our New Testament and go, da-da-da-da. Paul is doing something totally different. This is the reason why slaves and servants flooded into the church. They're like, the G- gospel says, What? He addresses them first, and then listen to what he says to the masters. This is huge. Verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What's the same way? Don't threaten them since you know that that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. He says to the masters, treat your slaves in the same way as what? You go all the way up to verse 5. You know what Paul says in verse 5? Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear. He's saying to the masters, treat your slaves with respect and fear. You know what that culture was being told? Seneca, a Roman philosopher, was like, treat your slaves as enemies. Treat your slaves as enemies. Aristotle, some people are just born to be slaves. Slaves for life. Paul comes along and says, you and the masters, equal footing in the sight of God. Both have dignity, responsible agents. That's the gospel, man. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine what would happen to our culture if we embrace this biblical principle and everybody lived this out? Can you imagine what our society would look like? You know, it would look look like the kingdom of God. That's what it would look like. Mm -hmm. So what does Paul say here that would have been revolutionary, that would enable these slaves, despite the humiliation and drudgery and grinding, crushing nature of their work as slaves, that was able to make their life meaningful and satisfying, sustainable and bearable. And if you're here today going, man, I don't know if I can do what I do wholeheartedly. Here's two truths that we need to embrace and then the power to do this. And then we're done. First of all, all work is a calling from God. Everybody say that. All work is a calling from God. One more time. All work is a calling from God. Can we just clear away one huge misconception once and for all? Give me like three minutes to do it. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. That only pastors are called. Can I get an amen to that? Where do we get that from? We don't get it from the Bible, I'll tell you that. You want me to show you? I'll show you exactly what the Bible says and how it uses that word calling. So from this day forth, we shall no longer use the word calling just for pastors. All right? Here's what the Bible says in terms of calling. The most general way it's used is that all believers are called. All believers are called. And yes, that calling there talks about being called from darkness, kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. Being called out of a life of sin and rebellion into life of obedience and righteousness and holiness. And Paul talks about this general call as the most prominent word in the Bible, in the New Testament. You all have been called. To which somebody, if you're paying attention, you're going, whoa, 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 but doesn't Paul say a couple times in the New Testament, I, Paul, an apostle of God, called by Jesus, yes, but I just actually slipped and I told you. That only appears twice. All the New Testament, when Paul goes, I've been called as an apostle, only twice. All the other times, it's used this. All believers are called. All believers are called. And the Bible says that that means it has ramifications for all of your life. Let me show you what, in the most profound way, How Paul saw all callings as the same. That his wasn't better, more special. All calling was the same. And the ramifications it has for everybody. In Romans chapter 1, one of the two times where he says, I'm called. Hi, Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, among whom you, say with me, you also are called. What are you? You are what? What are you? You are what? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are called to right where you are? (laughs) I know, but some of us are like, whoa, okay. Pastors, missionaries, apostles, preachers, they're called. What I do is a job. Paul goes, no, 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 no. I've been called as an apostle. Do you think what I do is important? Paul goes, yeah. He says, you also have been called. This is the reason why. Here's one of the occasions when Paul says we've all been called. Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Chapters 1 to 3 he talks about what this call is. And then chapter 4, he goes, so here's how people who are called live. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he talks about our work life, our family life, our marriage life. He talks about the relationship between employers and employees. He talks about our spiritual life. But he also talks about the everyday life. All of these things. He goes, Paul, these are called. You're called. And we're going to, at the end, at this service, and this is hugely important for me. I'm going to commission all of you guys to go, you're all called when you get up tomorrow morning at 7 to where you are. And how will that change how you look at your job, look at your boss, look at the people you work with? God, done, there are no accidents with God. You are called. Whew. So can we start using that word together? Can we start using that word together? Eddie, Eddie, where have you been called, man? Where have you been called to? Where have you been called to? That's what happens when you doze off in this church. No. (laughs) I know, that's my brother. Where have you been called to? Can you answer that with... Conviction and saying, I have been called. Can you say, Peter, what you do is not more important than what I do. I have been called. I said, listen, the people that are going to change the world are not standing in the pulpit. The people that are going to change the world are not standing in the pulpits. You've been led to believe that people that are going to change the world are sitting in the pews. Why do we live in a country where Christianity has been marginalized and people scoff when they hear about Christians. Could it be that we have this dichotomy of you're called? I have a job. What if we flipped it and said, we're all called. We're all called. Every job is important. Why? We've been saying this for like last three weeks. I'm just going to summarize it. All work is important for human flourishing. All work is vital for human flourishing. You want me to give you an example? If somebody doesn't clean your bathroom, you're going to (laughs) die. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about? It's called hygiene, man. It's called germs. If somebody doesn't clean, listen, if somebody doesn't, I'm putting it the most extreme way possible. If somebody doesn't sweep the streets of Chicago, there is no civilization. Do you hear what I'm saying? What's the difference between someone who sleeps to Chicago and someone who preaches? I'll tell you what. Nothing. Why? We're both bringing order out of chaos. We're both bringing order out of disorder. There's no difference. Are you kidding me? Every work is important for human flourishing. So two principles real quick and then we're done. Application principles, right? We're not done with the sermon in case you're is with this part, right? <laughs> First of all. Do something that will make the world what you want it to be. You need to know a big secret that I have. You know what my big secret is? My big secret is that there are some people here who will look at the way that the government works in this country and go, that's not how a government ought to work, so I'm going to go into government and change it for the kingdom. That there are some of you who will look at Music, arts in this world and go, that's not how it ought to be. It doesn't reflect kingdom values. I'm going to go in there and change it. Business, law, teaching, whatever the field is. How many of you are looking at it and going, that's not how it ought to be. My challenge, then do something about it. Do something about it. There's a sister here. I think it's you. I'm not going to point you out. Who worked for Second City? Second City. Comic, comedy. Comedy. And we had a great conversation up here. I said, what are you doing? She told me, I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, I said, think of what would happen if people who are funny, I mean, funny and love Jesus was able to influence that world for the kingdom. See, that's what I get a joy out of. I'm telling you, I'm telling, what what can you do? The people that are going to change the world is not standing on the pulpit out there. Secondly, secondly, do what you do well. What do I mean? Mind your own business, man. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen? Because us 24 or 5 something, we want to do everything. It was me. 24, 25, I shot out a cannon from seminary. I'm like, I want to save the world. I neither saved the world nor did any effective work. Why? Because I wanted to do everything. And the Bible says, son, do what you do and do that well. And let other people do what they do well. You know what I'm saying? Every single one of us is a kingdom mission that God has given us. And especially for some of us. I mean, our desire is to do this and do that and do everything. And God goes, I've given you a call in that time for that season. Do that really well. But God, what about all the? I got all these others. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're God. (laughs) So do what you do well. Learn to, listen, learn to say no to just as many things as what you say yes to. Learn to do what you do and don't do what you don't do. Okay? Does that make sense? Say it again, Carla. Do, learn to do what you do and learn to don't do. Some of us, seriously, today we got to go home and make a list of this is what I don't do. <laughs> and go, I'm going to stop doing these things because I don't do these things. Amen? What do you do? God has called you to do that one thing. Be faithful to it. Do what you do. Well, all right. All work is unto the Lord. All work is unto the Lord. All right. Um, this is the second main principle that we see here. God is the real boss. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7. silver serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. <laughs> whether he is slave or free. There's another household code uh, found in Colossians chapter three, you guys. And I want to go there and I want us to read this together. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three, here we go. Whatever. Stop right there. Whatever you do. You know what that means? Oh, it's not what I want to do. Paul says, not the issue. Uh, it's just a temp job in between, Paul says. What? Say with me. Not the issue. I'm uh, overqualified and underpaid for it. Paul says what? Not the issue. Uh, this is just to tie me over until Paul says what? Not the issue. He says, whatever you do. <laughs> I know, to some of us with rebellious hearts, are like whatever. No, no, that's not what he means. Now, whatever. He says, whatever you do. And this is hard, you guys. Oh, my gosh. Just soak it in. Next part. Ready? Work at it with all your heart. To which you go, okay, I want to go home now. Peter, are you telling me, or actually is God telling me, that that thing that I do, work at it with all my heart? Relationships, I can work at all my heart. Things of God I can work out of my heart, what, whatever I do, like tomorrow when I wake all your heart. Next part, read it together, ready? As working for the Lord, not for men. And they give two reasons. Since you know that you will receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Read this last part together, ready? It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. You know what Paul is doing? What the Bible does? He's relativizing. This is somebody. He's relativizing human bosses. He's relativizing human managers. He's relativizing human supervisors. He's relativizing even our jobs. Paul's saying to the slave, that's really hard, that's really grinding, it's drudgery. He says, Yep, work at it with all your heart. Work, work at it with all your heart. Serve that boss, serve that supervisor, serve that manager, serve that company. But he says, remember, that's not your real boss. That's not your real manager. That's not your real professor. That's not your real chief resident. That's not your real manager. He says, you're ultimately serving for him. You know what that does? It adjusts two things. One, underwork. Let's talk about underwork. You know what underwork is? Underwork is what Paul says. We only work when the eye of the manager is on us. You know what that means? That means we do just enough and get by. <sighs> I didn't share this this morning. Um, while I was in seminary, I uh, or in my, in my life ministry, I've held other jobs, and one of the jobs was working at Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> I lasted two weeks. Okay. <laughs> hey, y'all know I'm real and honest, right? So I'm just sharing with you guys. I lasted two weeks at Bed Bath and Beyond. Do you know why? Do you know why? I was fired, man, from Bed Bath and Beyond. Okay, as a seminary student, <laughs> I was fired. This is so embarrassing. I didn't share this this morning because my wife would have been here and she would have been like, that's right. So I didn't want to, I was fired from bed. You know why? I'm just totally honest with you guys. I was fired because one, I showed up late for work just about every day. I mean, how hard can it be to show up to bed, bath, and beyond? You know what I'm saying? It was like I had to get up at five in the morning. It was like the afternoon shift. And secondly, secondly, part of my job was stocking, you know. And I didn't do it well. Like I would stock stuff and my manager would be like, where'd you stock? It wasn't there, man. You know, two weeks I was fired. So this is very personal for me and very humbling for me. Everybody knew that I was a seminary student and that I was going to be a pastor. Can I ask you a question? If somebody looked at you and the way you work and the way you do your job, would they be able to say, they are the best worker that our company has? Bar not. Or would they say, isn't, isn't she the one that like stretches her lunch hour a little long? Isn't she the one that was caught like shopping online for clothes while they were working? Isn't that the one that got reprimanded because they were on Facebook for like three hours during work? Isn't that the? Would it change anything if one day you're going to stand before God and God's going to go, what did you do with one-third of your life? Think about this. Would it be any different if God said to you and we stood before him and said, God, here's what I did with one-third of my, and God. looked at you and said, you know, when you were working, your attitude was, I'm going to work for this guy maybe in three years, I'm not going to have, but you realize you're going to be working for me for three million years and then some? Who's your boss? Who's your principal? Who's your supervisor? Who's your manager? Do you look at as this person, that person, person who signs my check? I can't tell you how often the Bible says it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That means God cares just so much. Listen, God, where do we get this idea? Oh, God, what God really cares about is my sexual life, my thought life. My financial life. But, you know, when it comes to work, God says, hello, hello, Lord of all, sovereign Lord of all, work life, sex life, thought life, financial life, every other life, spiritual life, all the same. God says, I don't compartmentalize. One day, we're going to have to give an account for everything that we've done. And God goes, How will you handle the fact that faithfulness in your work is faithfulness to me? Oh, man. That's, you guys, that for me is just like, that's convicting. You know what I'm saying? That's convicting when I get up tomorrow morning or Tuesday, when I get up tomorrow morning and I'm gonna go. Who am I serving? If I'm serving you, God, that totally changed the tenor of what I do. So here are four quick sort of principles, right, about underwork. Number one, remember that your work has eternal implications. It is eternal implications. You know, the Bible says in several times in the New Testament, Jesus says you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And in this context of work, here's what I know. You guys, think about, this. think about this. Think about this. I don't know what this reward will be in heaven, but here's what I know. And somebody, I think, Shosh said it really well earlier. Every single one of us, we're going to work for all of eternity. We're going to work for all of eternity. And listen to this, listen to this. We're going to work for all of eternity. And God says something along the lines of, if you're faithful with the little, if you're faithful with something that I've given of earthly value, then I'm going to trust you with that much of eternal significance, eternal value. And I don't know. I'm just guessing that somehow what we do on earth right now will determine what kind of jobs we have for eternity. What do you think about that? What I do right now, because remember, paradise, work, God, what I do right now may determine What I do for all of eternity, I don't know about you guys, but man, I care more about what I'm going to wind up doing for all of eternity than what I'm doing for my 30, 40 years. You know what I'm saying? And God goes, how you do your work right now, faithfulness, may determine what you do for all of eternity. (laughs) Yikes! Puts it into perspective. Secondly, how you work is just as important as where you work. How you work is just as important as where you work. You guys, I hear as a pastor this all the time. If I was only over there doing that job or working over there, grass is greener on the other side, and I wish I could, da, 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 da. And I feel like God sometimes going, you're so consumed about where you work and how much you make, and the odd thing I'm caring about is how you do your work where you are. When do we stop saying, Lord, I want there and do that, and we go, God, help me to do my work as unto the Lord today, tomorrow when I wake up. When do we start going, God, This thing that you've given me, you've entrusted me with this. And God, faithfulness in this job is faithfulness to you. Then you're far less concerned about how I perform, if I have the dream job in the future, and what I do right now. Here's the third one, ready? How you perform at work is just as important as how you behave at work. I just gave myself as an illustration, right? Listen, guys, I don't know where Christians get off on the whole, you know what, as long as we have good character and we're godly men and women, it doesn't matter how we do our jobs. (gasps) <gasps> i want gonna scream pull my hair out god goes good work good work good work good work it's just important as good character good character never never balances out good so i'm just asking if you're a student if you're a student are you serving wholeheartedly as unto the lord in your job when you go are you serving wholeheartedly as unto the lord fourth this is important Putting your heart into your work allows God to bless your work. Oh man. Putting your heart into your work wholeheartedly allows God to bless your work. How many of you guys want like, your marriage to be a blessing? Your relationship to be a blessing. Other areas to be a blessing. Yes, right? You know what God says? God goes, I don't bless disobedience. I don't bless disobedience. God goes, you want my blessing in that. There's obedience that follows. And here's the thing we go, God, I want you to bless work. I want you to bless <laughs> some of us, are, I want you to bless me right out of my job to something else. God bless me in your work, bless me in your work. You know what God says? God says, I want to bless that, I want to bless that, I want to be for that, I want to be within that. But God goes, so here's what you need to do. Serve wholeheartedly. Serve wholeheartedly. It's actually the Lord you're serving. So let me ask you this question, you guys. What would have to change What would be different? What would be radically different? I'm serious. Just think about this. What would have to change? What would be different if tomorrow morning you got up and you said, today I'm working as unto the Lord, not for him, not for her, not for them. Today, what would have to change tomorrow morning when you got up and you said, for the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord. What would look different? What would look different? All right. All work is unto the Lord, Underwork. All work is unto the Lord. It deals with overwork, and I'll be quick with this. I'm almost done here. Some of you love your job a little too much. Actually, in this audience today, there was like 70% of you. You love your work. You find significance in it. You find your identity in it. Your career means everything to you. Maybe you even love your management. Go above and beyond what you do. I had an email from somebody who was honest enough to say, Peter, my problem is not I hate my job. My problem is I love my job. And then she said this. It was interesting. She goes, so you know what I struggle with? She says, when I don't get affirmation from my boss, like, good job. She goes, I get resentful. I get angry. See, some of us, were sitting here going, okay, this is. The issue with me, when I don't get the promotion, I don't get the breakthrough, I don't get the job that I think I need, I don't get the verbal affirmation, I don't get the things that all these people are like, you are the greatest thing since I spread. Then I get resentful, I get depressed, I get devastated. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, remember who you're serving. You're serving who? You're serving the Lord. Do you know what that means? That means, ultimately, who cares what they all think? And the only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks. Who cares what they think when the only thing that matters is what your real boss thinks, And you know what Jesus thinks of you? You know what Jesus thinks of your work? He's already settled. He says, That's not where you find your significance. You find your identity, you find your identity in that. You find your identity significance and value and self-worth in what you do when people think about you. Do you know how many people I counsel? Who put all their eggs in the basket of career and job, and they give their blood, sweat, and tears, and they work and they work and they work, and their career blows up in their face. You know what happens? They don't have a self. They go, My life feels meaningless. And I go, If the very thing that you found meaning in is gone, you're probably going to feel meaningless. Who are you working for? Who am I working for? This is huge for me as a pastor. Who am I working for? Is it the Lord? Is it God? Is it ultimately him that I care about? And what he thinks? All that matters is what Jesus thinks. So we can do our best, relax, take a chill pill, take a Sabbath once in a while and rest. I love this passage in Luke 5. That's been totally convoluted, mistranslated. Luke 5, Jesus appears to fishermen. He goes, hey, leave your nets come after me. I'll make you fishers and men. And we go, see, God wants everybody missionaries. You know what that means? I'll tell you what that means. He's talking to business people who are going, business career, this is my life. This is my all. He goes, I have business beyond business. He's going to artists who are going, artists, that's me. I find my identity in the fact that I'm funny. I'm creative. That's me. And he goes, artists, I have art beyond art. What mean? you talking about? He's like, I have I have a source of real wealth. I have the source of real beauty. I have the source of real, real significant things that matter. And until you find that in me, not in art, not in business, not in law, not in your job, you will never be able to leave your nets. Never. Some of us grew up in our families where our parents were never able to leave the nets and it blew up the family. Some of you are said, I've never do that. Some of you saw people, you you said to yourself, college, I will never be that. I will never do that. I will never put my career, what I job, ahead of other people. And all of a sudden, you're on this track and you can't leave your nets. Why? Because you go, this is me, identity, significance, worth, who I am. And he goes, "Uh, who are you working for? Who are you working for again? Uh, real quick, I, I said this earlier, college students, thank you for hanging in there throughout the service because you're going, I don't have a job, man. What are you talking about? First of all, my own personal opinion, I think people should work in college. That's all I'm saying while you're studying. If you disagree? That's okay. It's just my own personal opinion. It's, yeah. um, it, because, because I think this is important to know. But if you're a college student and you don't work, you just study. Can I just, one, one small thing. John White wrote a call called Deliverance from Georgia. He was an effective, amazing counselor. Do you know? He shares his experience. When he was a college student, I know none of you could relate to this. None of you. But he would cram and then do well. He would cram and then do well. Anybody? You have, Cramming. What's that, Peter? Cramming. Right? We don't know what that is, right? <laughs> so one day he was exhausted. He was like, I'm sick of cramming. said, I'm done. And he just went for a walk. And then while he was on for a walk, he heard the voice of God. And God said to him, who are you studying for? And he said, well, I want to get good grades. I'm studying solely for the purpose of getting good grades. It has nothing to do with the fact that God has called me to be the best counselor for the kingdom. And he said, you realize, I'm studying and getting into this pattern Because my idolatry is getting good grades. So I could have the 4.0 GPA and somebody go, aren't you a good student? And he said, when I realized that ultimately the most important thing was the best counselor I could be, it's like I realized the way that I'm going about cramming and studying, working for grades. That was done. Students, college students, if you're cramming all the time, it may be a sign that you're not working for the Lord. You're working for your grades. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? You know what the gospel does to you guys? I'm almost done here. Carlton, you come on up. The gospel doesn't change the work. The gospel changes the worker. The gospel, ought to, the gospel ought to create the best work is that the world has ever seen. Why? Because we work really, really hard. But we don't make an idol out of work and overwork. And also, we don't underwork and underperform because we realize we're ultimately serving the Lord. So whether it's making a cup of coffee, whether it's doing investment deals, whether it's teaching, whether it's whatever, we go, I do the best that I can. And I leave my future to the Lord. All right, where do you get the power to live like this? Because the Bible never says do it without giving you the power to do it. And I just think it's so important that you and I realize that it's locked in that first verse that was read before all this stuff about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters servants. It's right here in Ephesians 5 where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Listen, if you're sitting there going, How do I deal with underwork? How do I deal with overwork? ah, maybe I'm not the most balanced person. I just go one way or the other and fluctuate sometimes all in the same week. What do I do? Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's where the key is. That's where the key is to which we go, what the heck does that mean? Well, the word reverence doesn't help much because it sounds like a Hallmark greeting card, right? Literally, the Bible says, submit to one another out of fear of Christ. Out of fear what is it? And of course, the word fear also doesn't help much either because we think of the word fear and we're like, oh, terror. You know what fear in the Bible literally means? Fear is literally a a joyful awe and an astonished, astonished wonder. Let me say that again. Fear in the Bible is joyful awe. Ah. (laughs) Awe. Joyful awe and an astonished wonder at what Christ has done. So here, here's an example. Psalm 134. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. And what the author of Psalms is saying is when we realize we've been forgiven, grace and grace alone, it results in fear, which is what? Joyful awe. Like oh, an astonished wonder. And Paul says, that's the key for you and your work. Why? Because if you and I are melted with the spiritual understanding of what Christ has done and it results in joyful awe oh, and astonished wonder, it totally changes you and me as a worker. What do I mean? How many are going to get up tomorrow morning and go work for a fool? Someone you despise? Someone you have a really hard time respecting? Anybody? one brother honest enough to go me how are you going to go work for somebody or for a group of people you go I have no respect for you I'll tell you how Jesus came and served who his enemies Jesus comes and serves who Jesus comes that's what he's saying serves who he bleeds he dies he is crucified he is tortured for who his enemies. You and me. And the Bible's saying until you are melted by that and it results in astonished awe and joyous wonder. You can't go work for someone you perceive as a fool until you realize he did that for me. He did that for me while I was his hated enemy and I can't go work for him? Her? If that Melted our hearts. Who is it that we couldn't want for? Secondly, for those of you that struggle with overwork. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you. And I wish that older sayings I could repeat this and affirm it. You know, if you give your entire life to your career, because you find significance, validation, identity, and all that, if you are living for that blood, sweat, and tears, when you fail, there will be it- utter devastation. And the Bible says over and over again, don't let your career be your master. Don't let your job be your master. Don't be your bosses. Be a real master. The Bible says there's only one master who bled, shed, and died for you. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And until your heart is melted, until my heart is melted by that spiritual understanding of going, Jesus is my salvation. Jesus is my justification. Jesus is my validation. Jesus is ultimately my boss, supervised manager, person I work for. Jesus is the one who looks at me all the days of my life and simply says, faithfulness is all I ask. Faithfulness is all I ask. Submit to one another out of joyful awe astonished wonder so here's what we're going to do we're going to take communion this morning Before we do you need to realize that you have been called and commissioned yes just as important maybe i'll argue more important than me since you guys get to be in spheres that i'll never ever be able to cross so i'd like all of us i'm going to commission you and then we're going to take communion i would like all of us to stand and if you can look at the screen this verse that we've been talking about this verse that we've been talking about throughout this sermon series as kind of the anchor verse of what it means that you and I are priest ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter two verse nine. I just want to declare this truth on you and I just want you to just just think about your work. Think about your sphere. Think about your home. Think about your school. Think about your neighborhood. Think about every single aspect of your life and what would happen if you took this seriously and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you live this out. First Peter chapter two verse nine. But you, you have been chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. Yes, you are priests. You are intercessors, intermarries of the intermaries. God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A holy nation. Yes, you are a people belonging to God. That you, with your life, with your work, with your job, with your vocation, declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, God, I commission these men and women. I commission these men and women. I commission them into their call as students as husbands and wives, as employers, as employees, I commission these men and women to their mission field, God. That as they wake up t- tomorrow, first thing tomorrow, even though it's the same people, same workplace, same co-workers, same everything, that the main thing that will be radically different would be the person inhabiting that job. The child of God, follower of Jesus Christ, who's been commissioned and sent as your kingdom worker, Jesus, for anyone dealing with underwork and struggling with overwork, I pray that as we come forth right now and take communion, as we come forth right now in remembrance of your body that was broken, of your blood that was shed, in remembrance of that, that this would be more than just a thing that we do once a month. But as we come forth, this would become real. This would become alive. That God, what you did for us on the cross, that we would respond in fear. We would respond in joyful awe, in astonished wonder. That we would respond with absolute amazement. And that this truth would radically touch our hearts, our souls, and our spirits. That this would touch the depths of who we are. That we would be melted by the spiritual truth. And that we would walk away saying wholeheartedly with all my heart is unto the Lord. Father, will you do that work? We do that work in us. We all stand together. We're gonna do this benediction. I found this benediction, and it's a perfect to me declaration of who you are, who I am, God has called us to do. And I want us to, I want us to declare this together out loud. Together as loud. Here we go. You are God's servants. Gifted with dreams and visions. Upon you rest the grace of God like flames of fire. Love and serve the Lord in the strength of the Spirit. May the deep peace of Christ be with you. The strong arms of God sustain you. And the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way. May the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way. May the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Have a great week, church. We'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey.